Good morning, Lansing. It's Saturday, it's 9 a.m., and the pet experts are in the building. This is the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show on 1320 WILS and 1320WILS.com. Now, here are your hosts, Rick Pruce and Lee Cohen. Welcome, pet keepers, to this week's MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show. I'm your host, Lee Cohen, here with my co-hosts, the pet experts themselves. To my left. Rick Pruce from Pruce Pets. Good morning, Rick. Uh, good morning, Lee. And to my left, we got Dr. Schultz. That's right. Good morning, guys. Let's talk snakes today. Well, snakes. Why does it have to be snakes? <laughs> <laughs> it's not a. It's it's not an easy. Okay, Harrison Ford. Uh, yeah, this uh, is okay, Harrison yeah. Ford. He's, well, he's it's a, well, it's a topic Why? that affects different people differently. But I will say this for all of you, if you've ever thought that you were afraid of snakes or been too close to them for your own comfort, you have no idea what life can (laughs) be like until you listen to our show today because you're going to talk to someone who is hunting pythons down in Florida in the Everglades while living down there, and someone else who went to South America in the Amazon and was hanging out with the anacondas down there. (laughs) So when you hear about that little garter snake that was in the backyard right by the garage. (laughs) That made you run in the house scared, crying like a little girl. (laughs) What I want is a canvas right now. Uh, Dr. Schultz, your feeling about snakes. How do you... What 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 you like them? Are you afraid of them? How do you feel? There's this little ambivalence about snakes. Ambivalence? Snakes, yeah, snakes are. Uh, you know, I'm a dog and cat person mostly. Okay. But um, snakes, and we grew up. We had snakes in the bedroom. Yeah. I mean, we we grew up with us. We had a garter snake in the house, and as kids, we always had a garter snake around. I mean, yeah. if if there would have been bigger snakes, we probably would have had them. Yeah. You How about know, you, so, Lee. Uh, yeah. Lee, are you are you a big fan of snakes? Uh, well, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of snakes. No, <laughs> uh, I've had a few incidences with them, as you might even hear about during the show. But yeah. at the same time, I don't panic when there's one that goes over my shoe in the backyard, especially when it's black and has a white stripe on the back, which mm-hmm. tells me it's a typical garter snake from Michigan. It, it hasn't killed much, those haven't killed you so no, you're good. nothing, no, nothing to so, fear in that regard so for me I, I think the one thing that i want to mention that you know it's like why would you want to have a snake and what what what's good about them and just remember that in our ecological format of uh, of life our you know nature that we have snakes play a very invaluable role at controlling you know pests and problems that we might otherwise really regret not having them around. We just, they just tend to be in the slither. So the fact that you don't know they're doing the work for you, you know, that's what makes them uh, kind of that mysterious pet. And so we'll, we'll bring up with Sean. He's a, a staff member of ours and, uh, and somebody that uh, has years of experience because he's worked at several zoos. Right. So he's like the tattooed zookeeper. Right. Uh, he, uh, he can give you some kind of insight as to you know, why are people afraid of these guys and should we be, Yeah, right? And, and in Michigan, um, if you're in areas where there's rattlesnakes, you got to pay attention. Some areas in Michigan have them, but most areas we just have, what, what do we have? We have uh, um, garter snakes and 
Maybe. Not rat snakes. I think rat snakes. Rat snakes yeah. and, and yeah. maybe blue racers too, I think. Yeah. I don't know all the yeah. snakes, but but they're nice. They're they're doing a useful purpose in the environment. Yeah. And right. there's no reason to be afraid of those snakes. What yeah. are they what are they doing in the environment? What creatures are they eliminating? Well it depends what it is. Uh you know, certainly uh mice and small rodents are are, are a common right. food item for certain species of snakes. Okay. Um and then, you know, some actually eat insects. You know, and amphibians and such, but uh, just mainly keeping things in balance. You know, they, they are consuming something that would otherwise possibly go in high population numbers that we would rather not. Right, and right. we are going to talk about imbalance in Florida. Uh, yeah, and, the and, and that uh, you there know probably a man well inevitably a man induced problem right. where a snake that doesn't fit in that ecosystem that was never part of that ecosystem was brought in. Um, accidentally, right. uh, we're assuming, and now is causing all kinds of havoc, not because there's anything wrong specifically with snakes, but that particular snake doesn't fit in the picture of what, what was historically been. Exactly. Well, the good news is that Sean also understands Halloween and the implications toward Halloween because that's what's happening in October when many people think of snakes. That's what they're thinking of. But we're going to have some other conversations about snakes, and uh, I think you're going to enjoy it this week on the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show on 1320 WILS. It's the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show on 1320 WILS. We're back here with the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show. And Rick and Doc, we have with us a returning guest on the line. It is so nice. Rick, you once described him as being like a utility knife where you've, you've got all every tool that you could ever need in, in this particular thing. Yeah. You've got that in yeah. one of your employees, yeah, Sean we do. Murphy. We do. We because do. the truth is, Sean, you, you pretty much know a lot about a lot, don't you? Yeah. I, I try. I kind of – I like to <laughs> – Think of myself as a Renaissance man. I know a little bit about a lot of things. I'm always <laughs> trying to learn more. So. It's time to pull out that that corkscrew that 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 uh, attachment that you can open a wine bottle with that little corkscrew exactly. it looks kind of like a snake yeah exactly because sean today i want to begin understanding it's october it's definitely gotten colder i'm looking and i see a ghost hanging from all three microphones in the studio at this moment so there's no question in my mind it must be halloween and so i wanted to talk about snakes and why do they get included in this holiday? What is it about them that makes it? Is it that they're slippery? Is it Help us understand. Well, I mean, uh, the, the history of snakes goes back through like both religious text and through mythology as being um, bringers of evil, of being... Um, these mischievous animals being these ones that like slither and get in where you don't really see them or hear them or know them. Like they have all these different contextual things about them, depending on like what culture you're part of or what religion you're part of. And so because of that, they've gotten a negative connotation. It's like, Oh, well, they're, they're the work of the serpent, the work of the devil, like anything like that. So they're kind of automatically, uh, pigeonholed into these evil animals, but really it's kind of the opposite. 
Uh, snakes are actually very gentle. They're very non-confrontational. I mean, really, they the only time snakes really try to go after anybody or bite or anything is when they feel threatened, just like any other animal would. So it's just a lot of misunderstandings, and it's a big cultural thing. So they're just big softies is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> well, sometimes these softies can get pretty big. Um, talk about the types of snakes there are. Let's start from the biggest. Uh, what what captivates your interest when you think about big snakes? Well, I, I think for a lot of people, the big snake is the – it's different. I mean, like, snakes have a completely different – body shape than what we're used to. They move completely different. They hunt completely different. So then when you see a giant one, it's almost like seeing a mythological creature. You know, like I'm personally, I, I've dealt with reticulated pythons, the Burmese pythons. So we're talking 15 to 20 foot snakes that weigh 150 pounds. And when you try to describe that to the average person who's ever seen a garter snake, you know, and they, that scares them, yeah. you know, and then you're like, well, try to imagine the size of this room it kind of throws a lot of people off. Um, but I think it, it, it captivates people just because of how different it is than anything else they see on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. they, they get, So I just have to share you guys a big snake story. When I was much younger, I did a uh, TV show over at Michigan State University. And, I'm, and this was, I think, before Rick had opened his store. But somebody came in with a python sitting to my left. Two people to my right, there was a guy on the couch with a cat. So this was a multiple, it was like this show, but in, in live. And we didn't know which TV camera was on us. And the snake came up out of the bag and was over the guy next to me and then over my lap and looked me in the face and then looked off to my right. And, I, and I'm very quietly, because we're trying to smile because we're on TV, I go, what's your, um, how, how, what does the snake weigh? He goes, oh, about 140 pounds. I said, that, that, that's great. I said, um, am I worried? No, no, no. He said, this, this snake could care less about you. He said, but that cat over there has really <laughs> got his attention. And the guy with the cat, was it was like totally clueless. It's like not knowing it. And the snake slowly, I said, okay. So when the snake takes off with a cat, what do you do? He said, we just tackle it. No big deal. I go like, okay, so we're going to snake wrestle on TV. Uh, so it, would, it would be good TV. It would have been phenomenal TV, but uh-huh. that was that was uh, yeah. the, my big python story of my life. But, right. but it was a beautiful snake, but it came up, and, it, and, and after it calmed down, um, it was sitting, it basically was – is suspended from from the bag all the way over my lap, and that bit to look at me and it'd sniff around, and I don't think they sniff, they tongue sniff, but but it was pretty, uh, very cool and very gentle. Yeah, you could talk a little well, one, bit about their sensory. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, well, uh, one thing I was going to say, and um, it kind of leads into the sensory aspect of it, is we're just basically a heat blanket to snakes. Um, you know, when I I tell people about snakes, and they're like, you know. Why is it that sometimes, you know, a snake might wrap around somebody's neck? It's like, well, you lose 90% of your body heat through your neck. They're a cold-blooded animal. They found a heat blanket, and they want to wrap as much of their body on it as they can. Um, it's why snakes will wrap around our wrists so much, or sometimes, especially with ball pythons, you'll see them curl up in people's arms and kind of go into the crook of their elbow and into their armpit. It's warm. That's really all they're looking to. And, you know, snakes have extremely sensitive sensory organs. Uh, one, they have a Jacobson's organ. Uh, that's what allows them basically to interpret smell as sight. Um, that's the easiest way to explain it. But basically, their tongue picks up pheromones out of the air and can kind of determine what's going around on them. 
And then when you look at pythons, they have heat pits on the front of their face, so they're actually detecting uh, heat signatures and infrared. Um, they have bad eyesight. You know, it's, we guess maybe shadow movements is what most of them can see. Uh, they don't have external ears, but they do have an inner ear bone, so they can feel vibrations on the ground, and that can vibrate their jaw and then tell them that something's nearby. But uh, it's mainly that tongue, and then with certain species, the infrared. I guess, and, and, and a lot of that navigation is going to happen not only during the daytime, but at night. Uh, are most nocturnal, uh, or or there's some snakes that tend to be diurnal? Uh, it's actually, it's very split. Um you know, sometimes uh, we look at animals and we tell by the shape of their eye. You know, if they have a cat-shaped eye, then, you know, they're definitely more nocturnal. Um, but some of them have, like, rounded-out pupils. You know, most of the snakes that we have here in Michigan, like our milk snakes, our fox snakes, garters, all that, um, they all have rounded pupils. They're all diurnal species. So it really depends on particular species and where you're at. Sean, when it comes to, you you kind of were joking before about the cat, but I guess I would ask you the question, how much can they extend their mouth in order to swallow something? Because I know I've, I've seen where a snake has had an animal in their digestive tract, and I mean, their body, it seems, can flex to however big it needs to be, but how, how do they get it in their mouth? The, How's their jaw work? So general rule of thumb for captivity's sake is no matter how big their neck is or how big their head is, we judge by the thickest point of their body. So most snakes, midsections of their bodies, especially when we look at bigger, thicker snakes like pythons and boas, um, that can sometimes be four times the size of their neck and their head. But they can also usually handle food about 10 to sometimes even 20% larger than that, especially if it's an adult. Um, so what happens is their their jaw is kind of like a floating hinge, uh, so it's not locked completely in place. Um, and then the skin around the jaw and neck has a lot more elasticity to it. So essentially the jaw, I just, for argument's sake, I just say it comes unhinged, um, even though it's already partially there. Um, that allows it to open up wider, and then that skin stretches out to however big it needs to be. And the greatest example of this is look up a video of an egg-eating snake. And that's a snake that literally will eat something that's six or seven times larger than the, its neck. Um, and they swallow it with pretty much no problem. Yeah, and, they, and when they're doing this, they still have the ability to breathe because they're not choking themselves when they're swallowing these big things. But that's right. They have a special air hole basically underneath their tongue that allows oxygen to still come in. And then, you know, they don't have the same respiratory rate that mammals do. You know, they're not trying to keep up a body temperature. So the heart's not pumping a whole lot, which means they don't have to pull through a lot of oxygen. So, you know, a lot of snakes, you know, can hold their breath, you know, well, they say hold their breath, but go underwater, for example, for 10, 15, or even 20 minutes at a time. So swallowing a large feeder item really doesn't bother them at all. And so you also, the the ones that are hunting at night, it's not warm at night in most places. Are are the, are the nocturnal snakes mostly uh, arid, semi-arid, uh, equator animals? Uh, for the most part, yeah. Um, it's going to be where it's, it's kind of a uh, same temperature or temperate like through and through. So uh, we look at a lot of uh, particularly jungle species are going to be a lot of the more nocturnal ones because you don't get a huge temperature variation throughout the year. Right. It stays within a general zone year-round, so they're perfectly fine for that. But when you get into 
extremely northern species or extremely southern species where we do have a change of season, then yes, those animals primarily are going to be diurnal. Um, not always the case, but for the most part, they are. Yeah. And mostly around here, garter snakes are the most common snakes that we see. And I just showed them, we had a picture. I We have some uh, wood, um, uh, like a uh, 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 railroad ties, and one was sleeping on the railroad tie the other day when I came up and said hi to him. But very mm-hmm. happy well, to be that, in a nice warm spot. Yep, that railroad tie, both the wood and the tar or pitch that's built into it are both absorbing up the heat. And so what people don't realize, too, is when you see a reptile out basking, our, our first instinct is, oh, they're sunbathing like we do, and they're absorbing up uh, all that heat into their back, but they're not. They're actually absorbing it through their stomach. Yeah. Uh, about 80% of their absorption is going to come to the stomach, so they go to a warm surface that's already warm, and then they lay on it. Nice. And, Lee, you had a, a – well, Lee, Lee's been kind of afraid of snakes, so we got to pick on Lee. Because, oh, we didn't know that. We would have really got this yeah. going. You've had a couple of uh, snake stories, but uh, when we started, you were talking about where you had found them kind of congregating. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, it just so happens that I was, I was telling them the story of my wife owned a catering company and we were uh, grilling food for the event itself right on site. And they happened to have a stone wall and it, it was all the way from the street up to the house. And they had asked me to set up the grill right by the stone wall. And so I did. I got the charcoal going. We get it. We get the food placed on it, and I'm I'm working my uh, spatulas and and tongs <laughs> to make sure everything's getting turned the way it needs to. And then I see something in the the side of my eye, and it's moving. And I see a head coming out, and it's a snake. <laughs> and then I like stop for a minute to look at what's <laughs> over there. And it's not a snake. It is a family of snake. And they had invited the cousins and the extended family at this event, evidently knowing that the food was going to be good. And I was a messy griller. So bottom line is uh, it, it was just – How many how many snakes did you see? Uh, it, it, it was close to a dozen, Rick. And yeah. I really wasn't trying to look because it was not, exactly – Not your favorite. Not, not it. No, and I, my big thing was I needed to smack them to keep them from going on the grill because I don't want that to start grilling. So, <laughs> so yeah, was, you don't want to grill those guys. No, well, you could. I imagine in some places they are certainly edible. Yeah, yeah. That's, Do you have any bad. recipes? I've had rattlesnake. So what's that? I said they're not bad. I've actually had rattlesnake before. No yeah. recipes to share. No, not offhand, but, you know, we could, we could <laughs> we probably make a jerky out of them or something. We could look what, it they, up. what they do in, um, I know, Texas, they do rattlesnake roundups in the fall. And, and, and they, they do, do them it. in Denver, too. Yeah. I've, I've been to a restaurant there where they had them uh, as a featured menu item. So, yeah. have, have you been to one of those roundups, Sean? Uh, no. Um, we could go very in-depth about that, but for the most part, uh, what I'll say is that the rattlesnake roundups are extremely outdated and inhumane. That does um, make sense. They uh, basically gas out their burrows oh. um, to get as many snakes out as they can, and then they do, uh, you know, the, uh, culling of animals is one thing, like cause sometimes we do have overpopulations. Obviously, being in Michigan, having a plethora of deer, we understand that. Um, but snakes serve such a vital 
part of the ecosystem um, that is actually extremely detrimental um, and can spread disease through rodents. So they're your rodent control, and if you don't have them, you end up with a whole plethora of things. But some of those rattlesnake roundups are starting to become more humane. They're becoming about education, which is great, but some of them still do things like sewing their mouths shut so people can handle them kind of stuff. Um, yeah. So yeah. No. we don't want Good to go to know. Like, too dark into this. Good, you know, good but to know. Just, you know do your research, I, will not, you know? I will not book a flight to a, a don't, snake no, roundup. Nope, nope. No. Hey, we're going to have to come up back on the other side, but when we do come back, I'd like to just – Ask the question specifically, why would one want to keep a snake? And then let's talk about what does it take to keep a snake alive. I was thinking the same question. That's what we'll talk about right here on 1320 WILS. The Mid-Michigan Pet Expert Talk Show. On 1320 WILS. It's 9.35 and we're back here. and We've been talking this morning all about snakes with our guest Sean Murphy. And Sean, Rick had the first question that he wanted to ask you. But before we get into that question that he asked before the break, I want to ask you about python hunting. Because the truth is you're one of the only people I think I've ever met who's actually been on a python hunt. Talk about that. Uh, yeah, so every year uh, Florida does a python hunt through the Everglades for, for the Burmese python, which is a highly invasive species uh, for multiple reasons. You know, um, some people release them when they get too big. Hurricanes knock down people's houses and or pet stores, so they get out. Nevertheless, they got into the Everglades. So um, the first year that they did the hunt, I went with a group of friends, including a former co-worker here, and we actually had maps um that one of our friends had uh, brought with her because uh, she had worked for an organization that tracked them. And so we went to a bunch of hot spots and we hiked the Everglades for three days and two nights. Like we literally camped out in the middle of nowhere in the glades. Oh. And we literally just hunted for snakes uh, all day, all night. What's um, camping like in the, in the glades? Uh, it, it was interesting. You know, <laughs> it's, uh, How were the I mosquitoes? Done, <laughs> uh, well, you know, the mosquito population really wasn't that bad. It's wow. very similar to camping in Michigan, except you have venomous snakes you have to watch out for. You <laughs> have campers you have to watch out for. Um, and I, I will say, hands down, the most dangerous thing we ran into was Florida teenagers. Um, so we we were at our campsite, and they came through, and they were just doing donuts around our tents and then started shooting off guns. So oh, nice. that was the most danger we had was actually from people. Well, that that probably rings true in so many situations. So, yeah, so no did kidding. you find any snakes? Um, so we didn't find any Burmese pythons. Um, we thought we had seen a couple non and non-native snakes. Like we were pretty sure we saw a couple Colombian boas, which can be anywhere between six and eight feet. And we think we saw a couple juveniles, but they were across a fast-moving deep canal, and there's no way we were jumping into you know, right. possibly get swept away to go do that. Um, but we had talked with, like, some um, some airboatmen, and they're like, oh, yeah, like, we see them all the time out in the middle, and we know where all these nests are. But it was really hard to know if that was true because were they just trying to get us to buy tickets to bring us out there? Exactly. Um, or do they actually <laughs> see them? So. Yeah, and you didn't have your own airboat, I, no. I take it. No. So, well, so I've also yeah. heard that they take the males and put tracking. They've been doing this, putting trackers in the males, and so when they go to mate with a female and they stop moving for a while, they know they're there, and then they go find the female. 
that has been a newer technology that they've been doing. Um, just like with any other snake and, and uh, you know, the snake story about the grill is that the males all congregate around the female because she's putting out a certain pheromone. Right. Um, so by tracking the males down, you inevitably will probably find a big female or find a nesting area. It's no different than ladies' nights. It works. There's no question about it. <laughs> and, it's, and it's got Lee is like itching and scratching and moving and well, trying to get out of the room. Well, right Sean, now. actually, I do want to talk about Rick's question because I had the same one. Uh, talk about pet keeping with snakes. What kind of pets do they make? How do you care for them? Uh, just the details. Uh, you know, pet, uh, snakes can make absolutely amazing pets. Um, and there's a huge variety to choose from. People usually come in, they're like, oh, I heard a ball python's a great starter or a corn snake. Now let everybody know, it depends on you. Everybody's got a different personality. Snakes have different personalities. And I always try to match people up to what they might be looking for. Um, and for the most part, they're probably one of the easiest animals we have because uh, snakes are relatively solitary animals. And they don't do a whole lot of movement other than from their hiding spot to a basking spot. So setting somebody up with a, a tank is really easy. We give them appropriate size enclosure. We make sure that snake has multiple hiding spots so they can always feel comfortable, uh, that they have water dishes big enough to soak in if they need it. Um, and then we give them a basking area where they can go out, warm their bodies up. And then uh, personally, um, what I like and what I've been teaching my crew is to try to make things as natural as possible. So we mix different substrates together. We throw lots of leaf litter in there, lots of pieces of driftwood, and we really try to replicate their natural habitat. We've noticed that that makes them more comfortable. We see them more often. Um, you know, then at that point, as far as handling and everything goes, the more you handle the snake, the more used to you they're going to be, and the easier it is going to be to handle them. And I don't really want to, like, over-anthropomorphize and say they enjoy it, but they do start to recognize people. I... For example, our classroom snake, Sue, I know he knows who I am. Um, you know, they're using their tongue. They can smell our pheromones. They can know the difference between each person. But I think snakes as pets also start to realize that we are a heat source for them, that we are also a giver of food, and they kind of start to associate people as a positive thing. Um, now, again, I'm not trying to over-anthropomorphize it, but... When you work with animals long enough, you start to see certain qualities and traits out of them. And To me, snakes are an excellent pet, very easy to care for. I think they're very inquisitive. Um, they're definitely way smarter than what people give them credit for. And it's just fun to watch their curious nature. So, so if I want to get one, let's say it's, it, the snake is a foot long, um, and you're going to tell me it's going to get bigger or smaller. If they're in a smaller environment do you see them not grow as fast or or some of these pythons just grow like mad no matter what so all the growing is going to be more based on their feeding schedule so within within a feeding schedule it's um up to par and with them having the right temperate zone they will grow to whatever they're supposed to be now when we talk about animals growing to the size of their enclosure um it's kind of a myth it's not really that they grow to the size of enclosure it's that you contorted the body um, if they're stuck in a small, confined space, then really what you're doing is you're not allowing them to expand out the way it's supposed to. So you start to, like, condense down the bone and the cartilage and um, malform their skeletal structure. Um, so for snakes, my, my good rule of thumb is that when your snake is coiled up, 
they should not be touching both sides of the tank at the same time because so, that's going to start to push there. So you're starting with a 20, 30-gallon, 40-gallon size tank? Um, for the most part, depending on the snake. Um, you know, if, if we have a snake that's a foot long, then the absolute minimum size I would go with would probably be 20 long, but I would always recommend starting out with a 40 or 50, and then by the time they're adult, going for 75 to 120. Nice. Assuming it's got something like a ball python that's going to get that size. Yeah. Right. And how yeah. long do they like live? Most ball pythons are, well, I mean, depends on species. I mean, we used to say your average corn snake or ball python might only live 10 or 15 years, but we know now that they can easily push 25 to 30, wow. um, in some cases, even over 30 years. And that's just mainly knowing how to properly care for them. Right. And, you know, yeah, that's, that's 100% it. Right, right. And we know more just over time, you know, and the husbandry of keeping reptiles in general and snakes specifically has only improved dramatically, one, from the kind of lighting they need uh, to the type of heat that they want, the kind of humidity that they need, uh, you know, proper cage size. That's something if you went back 30 years ago, you know, not everybody actually followed the kind of rules that we tend to follow now. That's one of the things the Internet's done is, uh, you know, bad information can kind of well up here and there, but also good information that can kind of let people know, you know, what's a responsible care and keeping all about. And also, anytime you have an opportunity to stop in the store, if you're interested, if anyone is interested out there, curiosity lends to lots of questions. And literally, our staff is well-trained. They can just answer any question you might even conceivably have so that you know that's what you're going to want to do. Now, what age group would you suggest that he or she might be uh, before they get into a snake? Well, if they're going to have lots of hands-on help with the parents, um, I would say as young as seven or eight if they're very inquisitive and caring. Um, but for the most part, I usually try to shoot for over the age of 10, maybe closer to 12 or older, because they have a better sense of the responsibility um, and a better idea of the knowledge they need to have for it rather than just like, oh, this is really cool, I'm going to grab it and take it out every once in a while. We, we try to explain to people, you know, uh, what to look out for body language-wise with them, when it's appropriate to take them out, um, how to handle them if they start getting a little bit feisty or they don't want to be handled anymore. It's a little bit harder for a smaller kid to understand that, especially if the parents aren't as hands-on. Well, so I do have a lot of parents who come in who are like, I'm afraid of snakes, but my 8-year-old loves them and, and really, really wants one. <laughs> and at that point, you have to... You kind of have to find the counterbalance between the two. Be like, well, you may not like them, but you're you're going to have to help out here a little bit. That's all right, Sean. The parents have gotten used to it with breakfast cereals, so they've got lots of experience. <laughs> They'll be fine with the whole thing. But thank you so much for the great information. We've been talking to Sean Murphy from Bruce Pets. And after the break, we're going to have some more great snake information right here on 1320 WILS. It's the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show on 1320 WILS. I am the little red rooster, too lazy to crow for day. We're back here with the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show. And our guest this segment is someone who, Rick, you have known. He's, he's got an event coming up at Proust Pets in, in not very long. His name, Kapil Mandrakar. And Kapil, welcome back to the show. 
Thank you guys for having me. It's our pleasure. The reason we have you is because we're talking about snakes today. And Rick's like, yeah, I know someone who lived in the jungle and had some experiences <laughs> with some snakes. And I'm just thinking to myself, okay, that's not something that everybody can say and actually mean. So what the heck is he talking about, Kapil? <laughs> well, for my graduate work, I did studies on the giant fish Arapaima in uh, the lower Amazon. And I lived in the, the jungles for three to five months, or three to six months of every year for a period of about five years. And I have a lot of fun stories from that. And so I'll be talking about sort of some of my adventures in the Amazon at Proust. And um, just checking in with the diversity of fish that are found in this region. And it's, it's absolutely incredible. Um, it's just uh, almost every time you put a net in the water, there's, there's a new species of fish that you catch that you haven't seen before. There's some fish um, that we commonly see in the aquarium trade um, that have sort of a different uh, purpose in the jungle. You know, for example, like Oscars. Um, well, been a very popular fish at Proust, um, but they're they're considered food for most of the people there. You know, I got to I got to eat Oscar. Uh, they taste great smoked, um, but um, yeah, a lot of just uh, really cool stories, a lot of cool pictures. I, I I like to. I'm I'm not camera shy, so I, I take lots of pictures. So. Um, I, I can't remember. I think the talk, I think, has something like around four or 500 pictures in it. That we and that's, cover that's, in, uh, the eighth, that's the 8th of November, right? Just coming up here. Yeah, the, yep, the 8th of November at 7 p.m. in the classroom at Proust Pets. Yeah, and, and anybody that wants to come, it's going to be a great visit. Um, hopefully we'll have eno uh, enough seats for the number of people that are wanting to show up. So that'll be great. That'll be great. Uh, you and I had a, an opportunity to spend some time in the car uh, going down to actually a reptile show down in Chicago and uh, there and back. And the one thing I did notice is that you also happen to have a passion for snakes. And you had told me of one story where, uh, well, for those who don't know, uh, I know now because it's came up about a dozen times, Capil uh, has a passion for anacondas. So talk to me about your passion of anaconda, and then maybe the uh, anaconda, the unfortunate anaconda you stumbled across in the in the jungle. Yeah, well, so I think my first uh, encounter with anacondas uh, as a kid was in zoos and at reptile shows. And I think in the past, a lot of times you would see anacondas uh, uh, for sale or, you know, in people's homes. And they, they weren't always the friendliest snakes. And uh, what I learned, especially at Tinley Park this year, is that a lot of breeders were selecting for friendlier anacondas. And so I, I got to hold an anaconda for the first time at Tinley Park, which Rick watched me, almost brought it home. But, <laughs> you know, when you see these animals, I think, in their natural habitat, and I think what's incredible about the Amazon River is there's so much diversity there's so much energy flowing in that river that supports just an incredible biomass of life it's not just diversity it's just the the sheer number Volume. of yeah. living things yeah. and when you have that many living things that are able to be supported you're able to have big things like giant fish uh 
big cats like jaguars and just one of the biggest snakes in the world. So anacondas are, in terms of uh, body weight, are the largest snake. They're not the longest, but they're they're the heaviest, the biggest. Uh, there's more snake in a, a, an adult female anaconda than any other snake in the world. Um, they're they're semi-aquatic. They live in within these wetland areas. So when you're when you're looking at the Amazon River, you know you have the river channel, and a lot of people think that's where all the fish are. The fish are actually in the floodplains. There's all these lakes, uh, floating marshes, wetlands that are on the fringes right next to the river, and that's where people live, and that's just where the productivity of life tends to to be. Um, the river channel, I mean, yeah, they have their ecosystems in the depths, and it's used as a highway for fish, but uh, the fish uh, prefer to be in, um, when they're not moving around, tend to be in these floodplain zones. And because of that, that attracts other animals, and, and, and that's where these anacondas are found. And so um, I spent a lot of time in these habitats, and one time we were walking around, and there was a, a big anaconda. Um, I, don't, I don't really know, maybe 20 feet or so. I, we didn't really measure it. Um, that was dead. And it had a giant lump Oh, it, just, it was eating something, so basically choked to death. And, uh, you know, I was with a, a local uh, villager there, and, you know, he goes, oh, you want to know what, what killed this anaconda? And he, like, cuts a little hole open, and a foot pops out, and he pulls the foot out, and he pulls probably like a four- or five-foot human out of the the body of this, this snake. And that, that was just incredible to see that, you know, um, Sometimes uh, we do eat too much, you know. <laughs> so, for those that Even are listening, for those that don't listen, uh, explain what a caiman is. Oh, sorry, a caiman is a crocodile or alligator-like animal. Um, we, you know, in a lot of places, there's crocodiles and alligators. In South America, there are crocodiles, but the the majority of the crocodilian type things are called caiman, and they're kind of like a cross between a crocodile, and they come in. Um, there's multiple species of them. There's some of the smallest crocodilian in the world are like the Cuvier's caiman, and then some of the larger ones are like the black caiman. So they're basically like a crocodilian. They um, do tend to be a little bit more snippier than uh, an alligator would be that you might see in Florida. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, that, uh, we won't have, we don't have a lot of time left, but in your travels, through uh, South America, the Amazon Basin, when it came to animals and spending time out in the jungle, what were your main personal concerns of, of being harmed? Was it snakes? Were, what were your anxieties associated going through the jungle? Or you were you just like, hey, this is fun time? The, the two things that gave me anxiety were uh, mosquitoes. <laughs> um, back then, Zika virus was a thing, and the mosquitoes were um, somewhat scary. Um, there's stats out there that mosquitoes kill more people a year than uh, uh, most other creatures. Um, and then there's an acid-flinging beetle there. On one of the expeditions I went, one of the college students that was with us, she got uh, at night an acid flinging beetle like flung acid on her arms and it literally like she had acid burns on her arms. So that was kind of scary. Um, you know, you slept with mosquito nets, but sometimes they got through there. Um, and then the worst creatures there, and I, and I'm talking about all these river giants and caiman and whatever, 
Uh, but the most scariest animal to me were ants. I've, I've never seen such a variety of ants in one place, and they all have one thing in common. They bite, the bite hurts, and the bite lasts like several months. Oh, jeez. Um, so I imagine you got and, bit a few times. Oh, I got bit many times. And, um, yeah, it was the mosquito bites down there, they last about a day and they go away. But the the... Uh, ant bites—they last months, hmm. you know. Well, there repellents? Uh, did you like like deep woods off? Did you take some uh, stuff with you? Yes, yeah, yeah. I would. The deep woods off works against ants, but sometimes when you like step in an ant bound or touch a branch, because some ants live live on trees and branch, you know, you just always have to be kind of careful. So, so, um, so the but, other question I had too was: so you're down the Amazon River. Everybody, everybody. Anybody that's ever watched anything on the Amazon, the piranhas didn't come after you? The piranhas are not a very... The piranhas are more like scavengers. Uh, they're not really a predator. They sort of uh, feed on things that are dead. They're actually like the pretty much equivalent to like the vultures uh, that we see here in North America. Um, so, yeah, they usually don't scare me. If they're in a net, they will chomp you to all life. So that's, that was a little bit of careful... Uh, that you had to be careful of, uh, but usually when we did have prize the net, some of the, the local fishermen would uh, carefully remove them. They've just uh, they they are really skilled at doing that. So you probably yeah. gained quite a respect for the people that lived off oh, of that environment. Have to, you know. Well, I think the biggest amount of respect that I went there, especially you know studying science, is I went down there with the the urge of like I want to learn about conservation and I want to teach conservation, but actually the opposite happened. The, the local people there actually taught me about conservation. Um, and a lot of these people um, earlier on realized that their resources are limited and that if they didn't do something about it, they wouldn't be able to support their livelihood. It's November 8th at Bruce Pat's classroom for the conclusion of this week's story. But on behalf of our producer, Bruce Warner, my co-hosts in the studio, Rick Pruce and Dr. Schultz, it's Lee Cohen, wishing you a great weekend. Uh, we'll talk again next weekend. And all of you, have a great weekend.